today as I continue the series on the Holy Spirit. I want to read a passage of scripture that should be familiar to you because I've read it the last two Sundays. This is the third Sunday in a row I'm going to read it. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The Spirit of God works in certain ways. And the main tool, if you want to get in sync with the Holy Spirit, you have to get in sync with Scripture because the main tool of the Holy Spirit is Scripture. That makes perfect sense since the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of Scripture. He is the true author of what we read in Scripture. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit has been sent to teach us directly the truth we find in the Bible and make that truth come alive in our lives. In fact, when a person is spirit-filled, one of the first evidences of spirit-fullness is a hunger for the Word of God. The Spirit creates an appetite for the truth He's about to reveal. Jesus sent the Spirit to be our personal tutor in understanding His truth and applying it to our lives. After all, who better to teach us God's Word than the person who inspired it? The Spirit and the Word always work together. If you want to know what the Holy Spirit thinks about something, read the Word. The Scriptures are His thoughts on paper. The Holy Spirit will never lead you where the Word of God forbids you. The Spirit will never take you against what the Spirit has inspired in Scripture. Charles Stanley talked about a couple came to his church for some counseling. And he said he discovered during the course of conversation they were cohabitating, living together. They'd been doing so for two years. Both claimed to be Christians. Each had a convincing story about coming to know Christ. They saw no problem with their premarital arrangement. When they were asked about it, the woman responded, Well, we love each other. And the Bible says that love is the most important thing. So we figured it didn't matter. I mean, it's not like we're immoral or something. We're very faithful to each other. The more they talked, the more confusing it became. They really believed they were in God's will. They had a peace about it. Their consciences didn't bother them in the least. They could not understand the pastor's concern. The couple honestly believed the verses dealing with premarital sex did not pertain to them. Their situation was different. They were taking their cue, Stanley says, from what they felt, what they sensed God was approving. They were ignoring the objective, clear teaching of God's word, and they were mistaken. And Stanley says this, peace or no peace, guilty conscience or no guilty conscience, the word of God stands. It is the final authority for the spirit-filled believer. The spirit-filled life is a life lived in accordance with the teachings of the scripture, whether you feel like it or not, or whether it feels good to you or not. The spirit cannot bless what the scripture said the spirit is expressly against. Don't blame your crud on the spirit when the spirit has already made himself perfectly clear. 
I hear this stuff all the time. God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to do what feels good and blame it on God. It's amazing what God gets blamed for. That won't wash. I'll say it again. The Spirit cannot bless what the Word is against. If you want to work with the Spirit, this is principle number one. You cannot know the voice of God without knowing the Word of God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. The Bible is too hard to understand. Or to be honest, I've read it, and I'm bored. It doesn't speak to me. Let me address the first complaint. It is true that some of the Scripture is hard to understand. But at least 90% of the Scriptures are clear enough for almost anyone to understand. Don't worry about the 10% that's hard. Worry about the 90% that's absolutely clear. If we're really honest, reading and meditating on Scripture is not a problem of education. It's not a problem of complication. It's a problem of motivation. Which leads us back to today's text. Did you notice that Paul, before telling us to renew our minds, and how do you renew your minds? It's obviously with God's truth. What else are you going to renew your mind with if it's not that? He tells us to give our bodies and our lives as living sacrifices. You cannot renew your mind with Scripture until you have the proper attitude. And what is the proper attitude? As a living sacrifice, it means I approach God's Word by saying, I will submit myself to God's Word and to His Spirit as I read God's Word. In other words, learning Scripture will not just be an intellectual exercise. The goal of reading Scripture and renewing our minds, as Paul tells us, should have a result. And the result is this that we will do the good and perfect will of God, not just accumulate more facts or more knowledge. Because the Spirit is about transformation, not just getting us more information we never act on. Let me tell you something that I think are the three main problems in, with Christian education in Western civilization. The first is what I've already touched on. We've treated the Bible like it's so difficult to understand that we need some guru to teach us. We can't learn from our, for ourselves from the Bible. We can't be taught by the Spirit like Jesus promised. We need some teacher or professor or book to explain it to us. I'm here to tell you today that you can understand the Bible. And one of the reasons you can understand it is that the Holy Spirit has been sent to be your personal instructor. We've got to quit insinuating that the Bible is only for experts. The second problem with Christian education in Western civilization is that we treat Scripture, we teach Scripture like we teach math or science or history. The goal is to accumulate knowledge. But that's not why Scripture was given. God didn't give us Scripture just to learn it or just to memorize it. He gave us Scripture to change us. God's truth is to be obeyed, not just piled up in our heads. His, it is to be acted on, not just memorized. The Spirit and the Word are to transform us, not just inform us. Dallas Willard, who went to be with the Lord and one, one of the great Christian writers and teachers of the 20th and early 21st century, he gave this example. He said, you may have been told that it's good to read the Bible through every year and that you can ensure this will happen by reading so many verses per day from the Old and New Testaments. If you do this, you may enjoy the reputation of one who reads the Bible through each year, and you may congratulate yourself on it. But will you become more like Christ and more filled with the life of God? 
It is a proven fact that many who read the Bible in this way, as if they were taking medicine or exercising on a schedule, do not advance spiritually. And here's the point I want you to hear. He said, it is better in one year to have 10 good verses transferred into the substance of your lives than to have every word of the Bible flash before your eyes. We read to open ourselves to the Spirit. Did you get that? Scripture reading that is not applied isn't much good to God and it isn't much good to you. God would rather you let His Spirit really apply 10 verses to your heart and make you more like Jesus than that you know every word of Scripture and there's no impact. I got news for you. The devil from hell has the Bible memorized. How much has it impacted him? It's not just knowing the Word of God. It's what you do with the Word of God. This is why Paul talks about being a living sacrifice with our lives on the altar. Because if your life is not on the altar, renewing our minds doesn't much matter, does it? Are we going to submit to the truth and to the Spirit as He teaches us the truth or not? That's the attitude you must determine before you read Scripture. Because there is no use renewing our minds, no use reorienting our minds with God's truth if we're not going to live out what we learn. The Spirit of God is not as concerned about our ability as our availability. He's not as concerned about our giftedness as He is our surrender. He's not as concerned about our intellect as He is about our willingness to obey. Which leads me back to my third point of what's wrong with Christian education in Western civilization. We've not only distanced ourselves from Scripture, and we've not only approached it as if the goal is to get smarter instead of, being, uh, instead of obeying and being transformed, what we do is that we no longer work with the Spirit as we read Scripture. I got news for you. That, they come as a set. We need the Holy Spirit. Because why do I need the Holy Spirit to help me with Scripture if I'm going to do nothing about what I just read in Scripture? Again, if all I want to do is learn more facts, I don't need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is smart enough not to waste his time. Why should he teach you if in the end what he teaches you just lays there? I don't need the power of the Holy Spirit to do nothing. If I study Scripture for years and I memorize large portions of Scripture, and if nothing changes, guess what happens? This gets back to an earlier point I made. Guess what? I will get bored and I will quit reading the Bible. You know why many, many, many people start off reading the Bible and then quit after a while? It is because they took it, they piled up facts, they did not depend on the Spirit, nothing changed, they ended up bored. This is what has happened to millions and millions and millions of Christians in North America. We have to fundamentally change our approach to God's Word and to God's Spirit. And the first thing that we have to change with our approach is that one, we're going to obey, not just learn. Two, is that we're going to depend on the Holy Spirit to teach us and empower us. We're just not, our goal is not to just get smarter. And so this principle is simple but critical. How do you study scripture? 
You start by asking the Holy Spirit to teach you as you read his word. You ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, if this is true, show me what I need to do about this now. How, Holy Spirit, can you and I make this real in my life right now? How will my life be different if this truth is applied to it? You pray that for the Holy Spirit then to make it so and to give you the power to make it so. You read with a submissive attitude. You, and one of the ways you can do is until it happens, you pray the scripture you're reading. You pray it over and over saying, God, use this, change this, make this real. You pray for the truths to become a part of the fabric of your life. And here's something else you need to know. You do not rush through this. You wait on the Lord to teach you and to touch you and to guide you. If you have to stay on one verse for a week, you stay on one verse for a week. The goal is not how many scriptures do you read in a week. The goal is what are the impact of that scriptures in a week. And what we do is we go, well, I need to do, yeah, I'm not doing that, but let me learn some more. Well, I'm not doing that. Well, let me learn some more. Well, I'm not doing that either, but let me. That will kill you spiritually. No. Remember. It's better to be changed by one verse of Scripture than to know and understand a thousand verses that lead to no change. The goal is to have a renewed mind, which leads to a changed heart, that leads to a transformed life. You want the Spirit to apply truth in such a way that where there was constant suspicion, you now trust. Where there was lust, now there is love. Where there was greed, now there is generosity. Where there was the attempt to control life, you now surrender that part to God. Where there was the attempt to control others, you now love them instead of try to control them. Where there was addiction, now there is freedom. The Word of God in conjunction with the Spirit, in conjunction with the proper attitude, leads to transformation. Part of the process will involve not only learning and applying new truths, It will also require the Spirit helping you dismantle the lies that support and surround sinful behavior. Now, this is what trips a lot of believers up, so I want you to hear this carefully. Imagine, as Andy Stanley says, imagine your strongest temptations. He says, temptations are always camouflaged and supported with lies. Lies that make temptations appealing. The false assumptions that the temptation is worth giving into, that there is some sort of really, really important payoff. Analyze your temptations. What exactly is the appeal? What is the promise of sin? What mental gymnastics do you go through to justify it? Think of the conversations you have with yourself as you talk yourself into something you know is wrong. You will discover all kinds of things you know are not true. Sometimes, before new truth can be applied, you have to dismantle the old lies that will block that truth. When you change, you must expect resistance. Truth often doesn't take hold without a fight. What are the lies to every person here with every sin You have to say, what 
are the lies that sustain this sin that must be dismantled before truth can kick in. You know, and I'll help you. I'm going to give you some help on the lies we tell ourselves. I'm going to help you now. I'm going to meddle. Because some of us don't know what we really believe. Let me, I'm going to tell you today what you really believe, okay? If you want to know what you really believe, observe your life. I read one writer where he said there's three levels of belief. The first is public conviction. Public is, conviction is when we give the right answers because, that we, because when we think we will give the truthful answers, we're going to get in trouble. For instance, when a woman asked, does this dress make my hips look large? The corrector answer is, no, I didn't even know you had hips. What are hips? I thought you were an eel. I did not know. The same applies to posteriors. The next level of belief is private conviction. Private conviction is something I want to be true but may, may not be anyway. You know, in other words, I may really, really say I believe in generosity, but do I practice it? I may really, really say I believe in agape love, but am I still unloving to people? You see, there's a huge difference between wanting to believe something and actually believing it. And hear this. What you practice is what you really believe. You can say all the right things and you can believe it intellectually, but if you don't live it out, you don't really believe it. Which leads to the third level of belief, which is core values. Core values are what we really believe in good times and bad, when someone's in the room or when they're not in the room. It's what a mother feels when she really says she loves her child. It doesn't matter. Maternal love, you know, public, private, mamas love their babies, okay? It's what Pittsburgh Steeler fans feel towards their teams. You know what I'm saying? Have you noticed that the best fans in the world are Pittsburgh Steeler fans? They support the Steelers and the Penguins and the Pirates, and they've had horrible years, and they keep supporting, and they hardly ever boo them, unlike Philadelphia fans. Pittsburgh Steeler fans are like that loyal dog that will lick you no matter what. Pittsburgh Eagles fans and Philadelphia fans are like coiled rattlesnakes that will bite you and strike at the first sign of mediocrity. Obviously, Jesus wants everyone here to be Pittsburgh fans. I think I'm hearing Philadelphia fans striking. <laughs> Please hear me. <laughs> Uh, if only that were true. <laughs> Jesus' existence was like this. What Jesus said and what Jesus did were totally in sync. I ask you today, what do you really believe? What are your core convictions? When you observe your life, what do you say and what do you do? Do they match up? And if they don't, what your actions reveal is what you really believe. For real, for real. So often we lie to ourselves, don't we? 
That's why David said, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Do you get what David was saying here? He didn't trust his own objectivity. He knew the heart, at least the fallen part of a human heart, is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Part of me wants to be deceived. Part of me wants to cling to lies. So, Lord, you search me, David said. Help me face the things I resist facing. Help me see my core values. Help me see what I truly believe. For some of us to break through, God is going to have to show us the real dirt under the rug, isn't he? He's going to have to show us. Ron Mel is a preacher and writer, and he said he and his wife thought they had found their dream house. It was this little farmhouse and picket fence and just, you know, perfect in every way. And he said, but they brought a friend named Ernie with them. And Ernie, Ernie was just, you know, this guy that had been in construction all his life. He was not a highly educated guy, but Ernie knew construction. And so he said they, they went to see the house. And they brought Ernie with them. The realtor was already there, he said. So we headed quickly inside with Uncle Ernie, anxious to see the interior of this lovely white farmhouse. We looked at the bedrooms, the square footage, the views. Ernie stuck his nose up against door jams, muttered under sinks, and looked for all the world like he was about to climb up the chimney. As he showed us around the house, the agent kept shooting sidelong glances at Ernie. When Ernie commenced tapping his foot all around the toilet, Mel said, I started to get embarrassed. Good grief. Isn't he getting a little carried away, Mel thought. And then... He says, while they were going through the house, Ernie abruptly disappeared. Where in the world did he go? I wondered, in a closet, in the attic? Did he actually go up the chimney? He said, we kept looking through the house, and at the end of the tour, he said, we, we moved out to the front porch, still chatting with the realtor. No Ernie. We walked slowly down the driveway. Still no Ernie. What had he done? Hitchhiked home? And finally, when we were standing by the car, he suddenly poked his head out through a little opening in the foundation. Then, baseball hat askew, he came wriggling out of the, from under the crawl space of the house, and with a wink and a nod, he climbed in the back seat of the car. He said, at first, our ride back home with Ernie was very quiet. And finally, we asked, uh, Ernie, we were sort of wondering what you were doing underneath the house while we were looking at the rooms. We kind of thought you'd be, well, you know, looking around at things with us. And Ernie reached for his tobacco. Then he apparently remembered he was with a preacher, and he stopped. I thought, well, never mind. <laughs> and he said this. He said, well, son, it was a pretty house upstairs and all, with all that fresh paint and knickknacks, but that's just icing on the cake. Just because the cake's pretty don't mean the cake's any good. All that upstairs stuff can be fixed up and polished. But some of the most important things to see is under the house. Got to check for termites, rodents, dry rot. Also got to check the foundation, the plumbing, and the ducting. Now, I sure hate to let you kids down and all. But that particular house that you fell in love with is on her last legs. She's a wreck. She is a money pit if I ever saw one. Wouldn't buy her in a million years. How's some lunch? 
Mel said, Joyce and I were stunned and disappointed. It was such a cozy, cheery old house with a really neat view. It had personality. We could see our family fitting right in, and we could afford it. There was a reason they could afford it. But Ernie was right. And Mel said, he undoubtedly saved us a great deal of grief. And he concluded with this. Uncle Ernie is an exceptional home inspector because he knows the value of a house isn't in what can be seen, but what can't be seen. He knows that white paint and floral wallpaper and pansies along the wall and ruffled curtains and precious moment angels in the window don't count for much in the long run. He knows that by looking in the attic, you can tell if the framing is secure. He knows that by peeking under the porch, you can observe whether the foundation is set. He knows if the house is worth the price, you can tell at a glance what's right and wrong. He's had years of experience poking around under the rafters and under the floorboards. The Holy Spirit knows where our foundations are cracked. He knows where our wires are frayed. He knows where we're leaking oil or water. Because it's, what is true for a house is true for us. It's not what you can see that determines what's going to happen. It's what you can't see that determines what's going to happen. And very often, we can't see it ourselves. We need somebody like Ernie. And who's like Ernie in our lives? Every one of us has a kind of Ernie. He's called the Holy Spirit. And he knows what needs fixing better than what we do. He knows us better than ourselves. No wonder David said, search me, O Lord. I am prone to overlook certain problems. In fact, I'm prone to not see certain problems at all. I am prone to believe lies if they bring me pleasure. I am prone to live by fear. Holy Spirit, show me through your word what I need to know and apply. Holy Spirit, show me what's really going on with the plumbing. Before your mind can be renewed, you got to check the foundation and the attic, and the pipes. Because if you put on nice coats of paint on a crumbling house, the coats of paint won't last long. They'll just crumble with the house. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit takes the words of Scripture and makes them realities. You see, there's a world of difference between hearing Jesus loves me and the Holy Spirit pouring Jesus' love directly into me. Real revelation, if you haven't discovered this. The goal of the Bible is not the Bible. The, the Bible is an arrow that points us to realities greater than itself. Real revelation takes us beyond words. God means for us to experience certain realities, not just read about them. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, listen to this. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, 
No human mind conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Did you get that? These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Did you get that? The spirit reveals things that go beyond our physical or mental abilities. He shows us things that go beyond the ability of words to describe. He makes the unseen real to us. He makes Jesus real to us. He makes truth real to us. He makes transformation real to us. I remember the first year I was a Christian. Three of the most important things in my life took place the first year I was a Christian. Forty-three years ago. Wow. When I was, when I was two. And, uh, <laughs> but the most important thing was that Jesus found me and saved me. That was the most important thing in that first year. The second most important thing that happened that first year as a Christian is that Jesus called me to preach, which I resisted, but you can see who won. But the third thing was I was remember I was preaching one of my first sermons. It was, it was about the third sermon I ever preached. And my first two sermons, to be honest, had been a disaster. Some of you know the stories of the first disaster. But I remember I was assigned to preach and I decided to preach on the Gospel of John, the first chapter. You know how that goes? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as I studied that week for that sermon, as I read that chapter, my mind was informed, but much, much more happened. The only way I can describe it is that as I studied those words, the Holy Spirit took those words and my soul lit up like a Christmas tree. Jesus was God and God was clothed in flesh and that same God was in the room with me, alive in me. It was unmistakable, His presence. And the way I knew is I felt on fire. My heart and soul felt on fire. And every day for a week, it wasn't just the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was the Word took on my flesh and dwelt in me. And I burned with His love. And I want you to know, this went so far beyond the words on the page. Words can highly, hardly describe what happened. Words do it so little justice. But for a week, the Spirit brought me Jesus alive and real and resurrected and he poured the love of Jesus directly into my heart and it melted me and it changed me forever there is a world of difference between reading Jesus loves you and having Jesus pour his love all over you do you understand the difference there's a world of difference it's like a love letter you know, Kim and I, when we were dating, I, we were hundreds of miles apart, and, and, and she would send me a letter and say, I long to kiss you, and I go, a lot of good that does. <laughs> you know what? I wanted more than a letter telling me she longed to kiss me. Get in her presence and get an actual kiss. There's a big difference. This isn't going anywhere, is it? <laughs> you must know Jesus you must know him in the way he wants you to know him. And the Spirit is here to make him real. 
The Spirit is here to let you know He's alive, to let you know He's interacting with you. He is here to change you. He is to do, He's here to take you beyond words. That's how the Spirit works. Have you ever read, uh, ever had a word or a phrase of Scripture just jump off the page at you and, and talk to you in ways that totally surprise you? Have you ever had that? That's how the Spirit works with the Word. Have you ever read a verse that you've read dozens of times and suddenly you see what it means in a whole new way that changes you? That's how the Spirit works with the Word. Have you ever been in trouble and suddenly the Spirit brings a scripture you hadn't thought about for months or years. And suddenly that scripture pops in your mind and it changes your perspective about what's going on. That's how the Spirit and the Word work together. Has God ever shown you the perfect verse at the perfect time? Have you ever had things directly revealed to your heart about you and Jesus and it changed that part of your life forever? This is how the Spirit and the Word work together. Our job is to put the tool in the Spirit's hand. It is to get into the Word. And then it is to pray that the Spirit uses the Word to teach us. And we submit to what He teaches us. And we obey. We see what He is trying to show us. And we respond because He gives us the power to respond. And you know what the end result is? We do the good and perfect will of God in new ways, at new levels, in new areas of our lives. It's what living sacrifices are supposed to be about. What I'm telling you today, I've used a lot of words to describe something really very simple. It's get into the word. Do not rush. Be prayerful. Ask the spirit to teach you. Be willing to obey the spirit when he teaches you. Pray the spirit will give you the power to do what he's just taught you. And don't go anywhere till it happens. If you have to stay on one verse of Scripture for two weeks, do it. Don't rush off to the next truth you won't apply. And you're suddenly, here's the promise. If you will do that, Bible reading will become unboring. Because you're going to see what the Spirit can do with it. And your life will begin to change. It's simple, but it's profound. And I invite you, I invite you with all of my heart to do this. If you are in a rut, do this. If your Christianity is stale, do this. If you are floundering around with sin, go look up some scripture that applies to that sin, read it, and don't move off that scripture until you've applied it to the area of sin. Do this! If you are serious about this, God will speak to you through the Word and the Spirit, and He will change you. But you have to be the living sacrifice that climbs up on the altar and says, teach me, show me, empower me, because my goal as a living sacrifice is to obey. Okay? Everybody got that? Will you try that? I... Please try it, because it is the most simple, most direct way. Christians have used this for 2,000 years to change. And there's nothing new under the sun. This is how you do this. I'd invite 
the worship team to come forward. I invite the intercessors to come forward. But before they come forward, I'd like you to just talk to God about this. Before I move on and preach the next sermon on this, I'd like you to talk to God about whether you're going to do something about this. Whether you're going to apply this. Because there's no use preaching this stuff if it doesn't get applied, right? Amen. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and I'm going to give you a moment of silence to listen to the Spirit on this and decide what you're going to do about this. And if you're not going to do, what you're not, and if you're not going to do anything about it, the real question is why not? Why not? What are the lies supporting that position? Or the attitude of the heart supporting that position? Let's talk to the Lord in the sanctuary of our hearts right now.